Last week, uh, Sarah and I had one of Sarah's, uh, well, our friends, but originally Sarah's friends, uh, up to visit us, uh, called Ruth. Ruth was um, a childhood friend of Sarah's. They grew up together in the um, same youth groups and those kind of things. Uh, and so they've known each other for, for a very, very long time. And uh, she actually arrived last Sunday, which was mine and Sarah's 18th wedding anniversary. And as she arrived on uh, our wedding anniversary, it reminded me of a time 18 years before where Ruth had been one of our bridesmaids. Um, and we were doing the run-through of the wedding service. Um, and we were in a traditional church, and they had a very traditional minister who wanted everything to be done in a very traditional way. Uh, and one of the things that he wanted was they had these like two ornate chairs, you know, like thrones. Um, and, and he wanted these two ornate chairs brought into like the middle of the aisle here. And then he wanted Sarah and I to sit on those throughout the whole service, um, which isn't massively mine and Sarah's vibe. Um, uh, like ornate chairs sitting in the middle during a service. Like, it's just not where we wanted to be. Um, but the problem is that Sarah and I are both cowards. Um, uh, and so, so neither of us would have w- wanted to say anything about this. We're like, oh, yes, of course, that's what we'll do. Um, uh, wouldn't dream of doing anything else. Why would you not want to sit on ornate chairs in the middle of an aisle during your wedding? Uh, and, and so we were going along with it until Ruth, uh, Sarah's bridesmaid, told the minister in no uncertain terms that we were not going to be doing that. Uh, and ever since that, I've had a real soft spot for Ruth because sometimes you just need a five-and-a-half-year-old-foot uh, woman to stick up for you and fight your battles for you. Um, and, and so I, I was very thankful uh, to her for doing that. But one of the things, uh, one of the things that was nice about Ruth coming up to visit is we don't see her very often um, for a variety of reasons, but mainly because she lives in Bath, which is like a million miles away. Um, uh, so we don't see her very often. But one of the great things about people coming to visit who you haven't seen for a while um, is you get to like tell them all your great stories um, from the years in between. Uh, and so I got to, you know, as, as you sat there, I, get to, I got to run through like my selected highlights of the great stories I've developed and have experienced over the years since I saw her last. It actually turned out I didn't have that many great stories, so I had to settle for like some fairly mediocre stories. But, you know, I, th- I think, you know, it, it was nice to be able to tell them. And I am a person who enjoys telling a story. So I had a lovely time. Whether she enjoyed hearing them or not, I- I'm less sure. Um, but that's the situation we have here in Exodus 18. So in Exodus 18, what we have is we've got Moses has led these people out in the story. And, and his father-in-law, Jethro, comes to visit. Uh, and he, Moses hasn't seen Jethro uh, since... I mean, presumably, quite possibly, since he left him all those years ago to go back to Egypt to rescue the Israelites. He, he possibly hasn't seen him for all that period of time. So, so Moses has a lot to catch Jethro up, up about. Uh, and so that's what he does. So we, we read it, uh, that he, he goes out and meets him. And Moses told his father-in-law, this is in verse 8, about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they'd met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. You see what he's doing? He's, he's sitting him down saying, man, I've got some stories for you. Uh, and what a set of stories there would be. You know, it'd be Moses talking about how he arrived in Egypt and he found all these people enslaved by this superpower, Egypt. And he marched up to Pharaoh and said, God says, let my people go. I mean, it's dramatic stuff. And then he'd be able to tell him about how Pharaoh refused and was having none of it. 
and about how God, in his divine justice, brought plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh, until Pharaoh eventually conceded and said, yes, get out, we don't want you here anymore, leave my, my nation. He'd be able to tell him all that story. And then he'd be able to tell him about how Pharaoh changed his mind. And how he got his chariots and his army and how they were chased. And how when it seemed that all hope was lost, they were trapped between Pharaoh's army and the sea. How God parted the waters for them so that they could escape. I mean, a dramatic story to be able to tell. I've got to be honest, the stories I was telling Ruth were not quite at this level about my, the time since I had seen her last. A dramatic story of hardships and rescue. And what we're told is that Jethro was delighted to hear the story. I mean, just just imagine for a minute, if you had a story like that to tell, if you had a story like Moses, you know, you haven't seen someone for a few years, and what's happened in the past few years is what's happened to Moses. I mean, you would tell everybody who turned up that story, wouldn't you? You'd, You'd just tell them it over and over again. And not only that, you'd probably tell people who you'd already told the story, you'd just tell it them again. You'd say, do you mind hearing that story again? And hopefully they'd say no, but if they did, you'd probably still tell them. You see, that's, that's what we do with great stories. We love to tell them to people. And the other thing is that people love to hear them. That's why stories have been such a part of human history. Stories lie at the very foundation of our society, of every society. Every society loves to hear stories. And the amazing thing is that actually each one of us have a better story to tell than that story that Moses is telling. We all have a better story than that, a more exciting story, a more dramatic story, a more meaningful story to tell. Because the Bible actually tells an even greater story than the story of Moses and the escape from Egypt. The story begins in paradise. Imagine the scene. Trees laden with delicious fruits. Nature all around you. And you, not only that, but you spend your time with the person who you love. The person you love most in the world. You spend your time with them. And while you're with them, you're busy making plans. What are we going to do with this world that we've been given all around us? What are we going to do with this nature that we have? How are we going to use it? How are we going to enjoy it? How are we going to cultivate it? How are we going to make it better? And more than that, not only did you get to spend your time in this paradise with the person that you love, but you also got to walk and talk with the God of the universe. You know that question people ask you, if you ever met God, what would you ask him? Well, they, got, they literally could do that. Like every day they could say, oh, this is what I fancy asking God today. And then they could ask him as they walk together with the God. And they knew that God loved them and they loved God. This, this, is the, this is the beginning of the great story of the Bible. But into that story comes this evil tyrant. And this tyrant, he tricks the people. He tricks them into turning their back on that God. And what does he do? He enslaves them. Suddenly, where there had been only good and beauty and peace and love, suddenly evil and ugliness and chaos, they start sprouting up all around them. Their paradise became hostile. 
the fruit started rotting and the animals start attacking them. Their love for each other, even that becomes corrupted. Suddenly, there was anger and blame and jealousy and violence and before too long, even murder. And try as hard as they could, they couldn't escape it. They couldn't get out of it. They couldn't find a path away from all this brokenness, away from all of this evil and this pain. They were trapped. They were enslaved. And and all the time, while this is going on, God's great enemy is telling them, you're better off without God. More than that, he's telling them, there's no way back. Even if you wanted to go back, there is no way for you to return. You've blown it. There's no hope for you. If they asked to leave and said, look, we want out of this. It's all gone wrong. We want to go back to how it was. Then he said no. If they tried to return to God, they couldn't. Their slavery was complete. There was no hope of escape. Generation after generation was born and they were all born into this same slavery. They were all trapped in this cycle of ugliness, of evil, and ultimately, of death. And there's actually no hope of escape. The evil empire which had enslaved them was far too powerful. But then, into that story comes the great rescuer, the Moses figure. And this rescuer wasn't just anyone, it was God himself become one of them. And because he was God, he was not under the tyranny of sin and death. And and because he was a human, he could fight for humanity. He could represent them. He could fight the battle on their behalf. He came to wage war against sin and death. He came to bring freedom for these people who for generations had been enslaved. And he won the victory with two great weapons. Two great weapons that he brought to fight against this tyranny. Forgiveness and resurrection. They were his two great weapons. By offering forgiveness, people were freed from the guilt that had enslaved them. If they were forgiven, they could escape sin's power and return to the perfect God that their sin had separated them from. Forgiveness was the great weapon against sin. But but forgiveness came at a price because sin always led to death. Sin always resulted in death, and so the removal of sin required death, and so Jesus, our great rescuer, died to pay for our forgiveness. But by dying, he could actually wield his next great weapon, the weapon of resurrection. As he died, he fought against death, and he overcame it so comprehensively that three days later, he rose again. Death could not stand against his life-giving power, and so the power of this of this empire that had enslaved us was broken. Sin and death no longer ruled over us. Forgiveness and resurrection had triumphed. And so, once Jesus is raised, there begins this revolution. A revolution which would bring freedom to more and more people around the globe. A revolution where person after person would experience the freedom of knowing that they are forgiven. A revolution where communities of people committed to loving each other would start springing up across the world. 
A revolution where people would be free to know God and to talk to him and to hear from him and to know his love for them. A revolution where people would no longer allow sin and death to rule over them, but would instead fight against their sin and live their lives confident in their resurrection. Now, now that, that story, that story is so great because it has so many of the components of a great story. Not only does it tell of an incredible victory which came about as a result of what looked like a crushing defeat. I mean, that's what we love in stories, isn't it? When someone looks like there's no hope, like the defeat is inevitable, but then victory comes. We love that in the story. Well, it's got that. But it also tells the story of love overcoming hate, of hope overcoming despair, of forgiveness overcoming guilt. Again, we love that in stories. Think of the stories you love. We love to hear of stories like that. It also tells of weakness triumphing over strength, over the strongest forces ever encountered on this planet. We love that. We love an underdog tale. We love the tale of where weakness can triumph over strength. These are all things that make this a great story. But there's actually one thing which makes it the greater story. And that is that it's a story in which every human being, and that, that probably includes you, it is a part of. The slavery which is talked about is your slavery. The rescue which is won is won for you. The love which overcame hate is God's love for you. The hope which conquers despair is a hope that you can have. See, this is what makes it the greater story is that it's not just a story about these people over here. You see, Moses could tell Jethro of a great story of rescue, of good triumphing over evil, of God triumphing over a nation, bent on enslaving and destroying a people. But to Jethro, it was just that. You see that in his words. It's a story of what God has done for other people. He says that. Verse, wherever it is, 9 and 10. He was delighted to hear all the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them. And then he says, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. You see, it's, it's a story about other people. It's not a story about him. It's about a story about what God did for you over there. But that's not this story. This story is a story about us. It's a story about each one of us. This is not a victory won for these people over there. It's a victory won for us. When we hear this story, we're invited to participate in it. We're invited to rejoice in what God has done for us and for our people. Now, that, that is a story which I never get bored of telling. And it's also a story which everybody needs to hear. So, so if, you're, if you're someone here this afternoon and this story is not yet your story, then the invitation we're making is for you to make it your story. Ask Jesus for forgiveness. Start following him. Enjoy being part of the most incredible rescue you can imagine. Imagine being rescued from your guilt. I don't know how many of you have come here this afternoon feeling guilty. But imagine if you didn't have to walk around knowing that you were condemned and guilty. If you didn't have to walk around knowing that you'd hurt others, rejected God's, knowing that you deserved to be punished. 
So, so many of us live our lives believing at some level that we deserve to be punished and looking for ways to punish ourselves. Imagine being free from that. Imagine that no longer enslaving you, no longer ruling over you. Imagine that guilt being gone. More than that, imagine that actually being rescued from your sin, from the things that make you feel guilty. Imagine no longer being ruled by your need to reject God. Imagine being able to start combating your selfishness, your greed, your anger, your laziness. Isn't that a story you'd love to be a part of? How many days do I get to the end of? And and I'm frustrated by my selfishness. I'm frustrated by my laziness. I'm frustrated by the times I lost my temper. Imagine being rescued from that power over you. Imagine being free to know and pursue God. Not scrabbling around, hunting for the divine, wherever you can find a glimpse of it, but actually knowing the God who made you, knowing he loves you, talking to him, hearing him, reading his words, hearing him speak to you through it. See, that's, that's the story, and it can be your story. It can be every one of our stories. It's the story of the great rescue from the forces that have enslaved every one of us. And if you are, if you are a Christian today, so if you are somebody who would say, yeah, that's my story, I know that's my story, then I want to encourage you to do what Moses and Jethro do here. What do they do? They tell the story over and over again. That's what Moses does. He just tells the story. And what does Jethro do? He delights in the story. We're told that he was delighted to hear about all the good things God had done. You see, there's a temptation for me as I'm telling this story to think everybody in this room knows this story. They've all heard it before. Why am I telling it again? Well, because that's what we do with great stories. We tell them again and again. And each time we hear it and each time we tell it, we delight in it that little bit more. So if you are somebody who you go, that's my story, let me encourage you, delight in it, praise the God who won this rescue for you, enjoy the story. It it strikes me that many Christians move away from this story. They stop hearing it. They stop telling it. And over time, they forget it. And then they find themselves neglecting God rather than knowing and pursuing him. They find themselves experiencing more guilt than forgiveness. They find themselves accepting sin in their life rather than fighting against it. Is that where you are this afternoon? Are you somebody who'd say, yeah, this is my story. But if I'm honest, I don't experience being freed from guilt. I still walk around weighed down by guilt. If I'm honest, I'm not still fighting against sin, but actually I've accepted it in my life. If that's where you find yourself, I just want to encourage you to do what Moses and Jethro do here. Just find ways to hear this story. Find opportunities to tell this story over and over again. Songs are a great way to do this. We sing this story again and again. And as we sing it, we tell it. And as others sing it to us, we hear it. Sing this story. Life groups are a great place to to get into this story, to hear this story being talked about by a variety of different people. Sermons, listen to people open up the Bible and talk about it. It's a great way to hear this story. Read books, have conversations, go out for coffee with someone and talk about this story. Hear the story, delight in the story, and praise God, the great hero of the story. That's really what the first half of this this section is all about. That's all that happens in it. 
Jethro turns up, Moses tells him the story, and they delight in it in a variety of different ways. They, they eat a meal to praise God. They offer sacrifices to him. They talk about it. They delight in this story. That's all that's happening in the first half of this passage. But as you might have gathered, it is a passage of two halves. Um, and, and, and the second half, the second half turns our attention away from the victory which has been won to the challenges we currently face. That, that is the Christian life, by the way. The Christian life is a victory that we have won, followed by challenges that we face every single day. If you haven't got that in your head, that that's what the Christian life's going to look like, you're going to be disappointed. That's what life as a Christian looks like. Yes, we rejoice in a victory that's already been won, but still, day by day, we face the challenges of that day. For Moses, these challenges are significant, aren't they? I mean, you read of them after this. And as I read about it, I find myself getting slightly stressed just by the thought of it. If you've ever had any sort of leadership position, then you can begin to imagine what Moses must have been going through. I mean, imagine it. All these people, you know, just, just hundreds of thousands, over a million people, with all of their different personalities, you know, all of their different personality types that don't necessarily just mesh, that sometimes clash, all their different personalities... All the complex situations, imagine any complex situation you've ever had to deal with, it'll have been there somewhere. All of those challenges uh, of interpersonal relationships, of difficult situations, all, and then alongside that, all of the injustices that would happen within that, all the people who would take advantage of other people within that community, all of the lies that Moses would have to deal with, all of the deceit, all of the impossible situations that there was no good solution to, all of the strained relationships, all of the evil, all of the crime, all of the exploitation. Moses is there looking at all of this, thinking, how on earth do we make anything out of this? How do we hold this together? Trying to lead this people with all this stuff going on. Every day, another long list of issues to deal with, another list of complaints, another set of unexpected issues And so what's he doing? Well, from morning till evening, he tries to deal with all those issues just to stop the wheels coming off, just to try and hold this group together. He's rescued them, but now he looks at it and thinks, was was it worth rescuing? What have I rescued it to? Is it ever going to be able to hold together? Now, you can probably imagine what an overwhelming situation that would be to live in. Like how overwhelmed Moses would feel by that. All day, battling to try and deal with people's issues. Going to bed each night with a whole host of issues and conversations swimming around your heads. Each day, feeling like you can't quite keep up and like you just get a bit further behind. Each day, trying to work a little bit harder, a little bit longer, a bit smarter to try and get on top of what is an unmanageable workload. That's the situation that Moses finds himself in. That's what's described for us as Jethro looks over it. Now, now I'm guessing, uh, and, it, and it is a guess, that none of us have ever tried running a nation. So we've probably not experienced quite this. We've probably not experienced quite what Moses is going through. But I reckon as I was always describing it, probably we will have been able to empathize with what he's feeling. If I was to ask you, how's your week been? 
one of the most common responses I would get would be busy. I'd say it would be probably be the number one if I was to go around the room and say, how's your week been? Probably the number one answer I'd get from people is busy. That's how people describe their lives. We know what it is to feel busy, don't we? We know what it is to feel like the list of things we have to do is more than we can manage. We know what it is to feel like we're falling further and further behind each day. We know what it is to go to bed with a sea of things we've been doing that day swimming in our minds alongside an ocean of things that we need to do tomorrow. We know what it is to feel like we just need to work a bit harder, a bit longer, or a bit smarter to try to get back in control. Put, put, put briefly, we know what it is to feel overwhelmed. We know what it is to feel like Moses is feeling here. And that's the situation that Jethro observes as he looks at Moses and he looks at these people and he looks at how it's running. And his advice is, is simple, isn't it? He, he says it in these words. This is more than you can bear. You need to get some people to work alongside you. That's Jethro's advice. And I, I just want to, this is probably the last thing I'm going to do this afternoon. I, I just want to suggest this might be advice that you need to hear. Now, you might just need to hear the advice that Jethro is giving right here. This is more than you can bear. You need to get some people to work alongside you. Sometimes, life is just overwhelming. Sometimes, life is more than we can bear. Sometimes your child won't sleep and you're exhausted and it's all you can do to try and keep your child alive, never mind anything else. Sometimes you get ill and life is more than you can deal with. Sometimes relationships get strained and they consume all of your time and all of your emotional capacity. Life is full of things that are more than you can cope with full of them. And our solutions to those times tend to revolve around two things. We tend to come up with one of two solutions to that, those kind of problems. The first is efficiency. That's our great savior. I need to get better at doing more. I need to schedule my time to within an inch of its life. I need to get up earlier and go to bed later. I need to maintain my focus throughout. I need to stop getting distracted. I need to do things quicker. And so we build a new routine or we commit ourselves to being less distracted and being more focused. We put our phone in a safe. We try to go again. That's our first solution to the problem. Life's too much. We've got to just do more, do it better. We've got to be more efficient. Our second solution is we need to simplify our lives. That's the second solution we go to. Life feels so overwhelming because I have too many people in my life, so I need to withdraw. It feels so overwhelming because I have too many meetings, so I need to do fewer. Because I spend too much time out of the house, so I need to be home more. Because I'm too involved in church and I need to step back. Because I'm too busy and I need to be less busy, and so I need to start cutting things out of my life. These are the two great solutions that we hold on to. Life is overwhelming. It's too much for us. I can't cope, so I either need to be more efficient or do less. They're the only options. Now, 
don't get me wrong, there's a time for efficiency. I can waste time. I lament the, my ability to waste time and I wish I didn't and I need to focus on it more. There's a time for simplifying our lives. But do you know what? However efficient you are and however simple you make your life, God has designed your life in such a way that it is meant to be overwhelming. Life was meant to be more than you could cope with alone. God designed it that way. And he designed it that way so that we would do two things. The first, so that we would rely on him. And the second, so we would rely on other people. Life is more than you can cope with. No matter how simple you make your life, no matter how efficient you are, you will always get to a point where life is too much for you. Even if the only point that comes is when you get really, really old. You will get there. There will be times in your life where life is more than you can cope with, however efficient you are and however simple you make your life. But that's not, that's not a problem because God designed it that way. We weren't meant to be able to cope with a newborn alone or with your friend who's having a breakdown alone or with your own breakdown alone or with sickness or with old age. You weren't meant to cope with the stresses of a busy job by yourself. If you're Moses, you're not meant to cope with leading a nation on your own. No, you were meant to have people around you to help you shoulder the load. That was always God's intention. Often I, often I talk to people, and often when people want to talk to me, it, it's when they're going through difficult things in their life. Things have got really complicated, things have got really difficult, and they often feel overwhelmed. And I'll go and I'll talk to somebody about their life and they'll tell me about all the things that are making them feel overwhelmed. And at the end of that, I come away from it and go, actually, there's nothing I can do about that. Like, that is life. You, you're, you are overwhelmed because your life is overwhelming. It's because you have all these situations and they are too much for you. And so the real question that I have to ask then is, given that what you're going through is more than you can handle on your own, do you have people around you to help you deal with it. You see, Jethro doesn't say to Moses, oh, what you should do is get up an hour earlier and meet a few more people. He doesn't say, oh, you should shut that, cut down your meeting time so there are only 20-minute meetings instead of 30-minute meetings. Then you could fit so many more meetings in. He doesn't say, it's too much for you, you should just sack it in, get someone else to do it. You've done your time. No, he says, what you should do is you should get some people to help you do it because it's too much for you by yourself. Do you have people to help bear the load? Do you have people to encourage you on your walk? Do you have people to go for for advice? That's the role Jethro plays here. That's all he does. He just gives Moses advice. Do you have people you can go to for advice? Do you have people who will point you to Jesus? Do you have people who will pray for you? Often, what needs to change is not our situations, but our relationships. We, we planted Grace Church with, with the intention of being a church that helped people to do that. Like, unashamedly, as I was thinking about planting Grace Church, that was one of the primary reasons I wanted Grace Church to exist. I longed for us to be a church that did that, that actually gave people communities around them who could help bear the burdens they're going to go through. Because life is always going to be too much for every one of us at some point. 
We wanted to be a church where people built meaningful relationships, where people didn't just do small talk, but they pointed each other to Jesus. Where people didn't just see each other on a Sunday, but were involved in each other's lives. To be a church where we could help bear each other's burdens rather than joining in our society's quest for independence. And there have been so many ways that we've seen that happen over the life of Grace Church. I I can think of many ways in my life I've experienced that. But I I do wonder, and I might be wrong about this, but I do wonder if we've slightly lost sight of that over the past few years. And a number of factors play into that. I think COVID had an impact. People got used to not having people around. They got used to relying on themselves more. Some of the relationships got damaged. They got strained. I think that had an impact. I think the growth in social anxiety in our societies had a huge impact. People feel more anxious about connecting with people and especially about connecting with people in a meaningful way. So I think society has had an impact on how we've done that. I think changes in the church have had an impact on that. So as you grow, there's just more people uh, and suddenly sometimes you can get a bit lost. Who, Who are the people who are helping bear my burdens? Who am I getting alongside? You can feel like you're falling through the cracks. Like other people are getting that and you're not. Not quite sure what it looks like for you to find those kind of relationships. Or we can just end up spreading ourselves a bit more thinly. More people, but fewer people actually bearing burdens with us. So I think some of it's kind of the church. I think some of it's just we've forgotten that we need it. We've bought into the lie that actually we can do this by ourselves and that's what we should aim for. We should aim for self-sufficiency and independency, and we've bought into that, and we've forgotten that we need it. If Grace Church is going to be a functional biblical church which points to the glory of that story that we were talking about at the start, we're going to have to get used to helping each other out. And that means having strong enough relationships that people are able to help you out when you need it, And it means having an attitude where we are committed to helping others out. Time after time we are told that that is God's vision for his church. This is not something Grace Church came up with when we were thinking about it 10 years ago. Time and time again, God tells us that his vision for his church is that they're a family who bear one another's burdens. That they're a body that's dependent on each other. That they're a building joined together. If you, like Moses, this afternoon look at your life and find it overwhelming, here's what I'm going to suggest. Find some people around you to help you shoulder the load. That's Jethro's advice to Moses, isn't it? Find some people who can help you. And maybe for you that'll be looking to your family. Maybe there's people in your family who can do that and you can find some support there. Maybe it's looking to friends. Maybe you've got some great friends who can help you do that. But, but maybe you can begin to find this in a life group. That was always our hope for life groups, that they would be communities where people could start to find groups of people who would bear each other's burdens. We wanted life groups to be communities of Christians who can help each other to keep walking with Jesus, to show Jesus' love to people who aren't Christians yet. Now, being those communities is hard. If there's one thing we've learned over eight years of Grace Church, it's that. 
And it's really hard if just one or two people are trying to build it and hold it together. And it can just be too much. It was too much for Moses to try and hold that group together. It can be too much for a life group. But if we can get more and more people on board with doing this, it becomes unbelievably life-giving. Because it broadens what is possible. Because we're not now limited by what can I do by myself. Our, our horizons can be so much wider. We can imagine doing things that we could never dream of doing by ourselves because we've got people around us to help us do it. It broadens our horizons. It enriches our life. It adds color to our experiences. It deepens our feelings. Now, let me encourage you. The next time you're tempted to say, I can't cope with something, so I'm going to stop doing it, why not instead first say, I can't cope with this, Maybe there are some people around who could help me. Like, start there. It's not to say you won't ever get to that next stage of going, actually, I just, I just need to pull back from that. Maybe you will, but don't, don't go there first. I just want to draw your attention as I finish to what kind of people we're going to need to be if we're going to be this kind of community. Jethro tells Moses who these people need to be. They need to be trustworthy. They need to be people who fear God. And they'll be people who are not after dishonest gain. See, what's, what gets in the way of relationships like this? Well, it gets, what gets in the way is when we don't fear God. Instead, we fear each other. We give in to peer pressure. We accept sin. First, you've got to fear God. Then you've got to be trustworthy. If I'm, going to, if I'm going to let you bear my burdens, those burdens that are precious to me, I need to be able to trust you and you need to be able to trust me. And the third thing he says is, we've got to be people who are not out for what can I get out of this other person. We're not after dishonest gain. I'm not thinking, what is it that I can get out of this situation? How can I win out of this situation? We're people that are committed to the good of other people. They're the kind of people we need to be. You see, we don't build these communities by willpower, just by going, I'm just going to be that kind of community. I'm going to have those kind of relationships. You, you build these communities by character, by being the kind of people that people can trust, by being the kind of person that fears God more than you fear other people, by being the kind of people who aren't out for what can I get out of you, but are out for how can I love you and support you. Church after church has been ruined by untrustworthy people who were greedy for their own gain and did not fear God. That's what destroys churches. We mustn't allow Grace Church to be another one of those churches. So, tell the story of God's great rescue over and over again sing of it, talk about it, meditate on it, delight in it. And as you delight in it, allow it to change you. Allow it to make you thankful people who fear God, who value others above yourselves. And as this story changes you, allow it to transform your relationships so that we bear one another's burdens. And as we do that, we will not only experience something of the joy re God rescued us to enter, but we'll also show his goodness to each other and to a watching world. Let me pray.